Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 18 in the book of John, entitled The Man Born Blind, where we discuss John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, as we look at this passage and begin chapter 9 in the book of John, what are we going to see in these verses today? Well, this is a setup for one of the great miracles that Jesus does, one of the greatest miracles, healing a man born blind. We're going to talk about that, you know, more uh, next week. Next, next uh, podcast, but you know, here the actual miracle happens, and it's incredible. Um, and so, we're going to talk about the problem of evil, the question that's raised: uh, what happened with this man that he was born blind, and mm-hmm. trying to understand the Jewish mentality um, and how uh, sin uh, results in bad things happening or punishment. But now this guy's born blind, so how does that work out? And uh, that's that's a powerful and important theme. We're also going to see just the uh, just the evidence of Jesus' supernatural power. Uh, we have in our church a, a one of the best eye surgeons in the world, and he was talking about this healing, and we'll we'll see this in the next podcast. But you know, he the man born blind says since the creation of the world, no one has ever heard of anyone opening the eyes of man of a man born blind. Uh, this doctor friend of mine said it's not happened since either. It's never happened. So now, today, in the 21st century, if a baby's born blind, they will, they will never have normal sight. There's nothing that can be done. In most cases, they'll never have any sight, but even if they were to have some cataract or some other thing, even then their sight will not be perfectly formed. This is a completely unique occurrence. This man is a one-off in all of human history this one man. And he's such a remarkable witness. I can't wait to the next podcast to talk more about it. But here we get to just celebrate the power of Jesus and just simply doing the miracle. And what a powerful apologetic, even on the heels of what we discussed in the last podcast, of Jesus' identity and his power over something that even in 21st century America we have no ability to accomplish. Well, I'm going to go ahead and read John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12 to get us started. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Andy, in the disciples' initial question in this passage, they seem to make some fairly significant assumptions. How does Jesus address the problem of evil and suffering in this passage? Yeah, they're making uh, um, a common uh, evaluation that we see frequently in the scriptures. 
If something bad is happening to you, it's because you have sinned. I mean, the quintessential example of this are Job's so-called friends. And, and I don't know if they, they just never went to friend school or what happened, <laughs> but they, they just did not know how to console or comfort. A man who had just lost 10 children, everything he owned, mm. his health, everything. And, you know, they start out a little more gently, and it's like, but it's still the same perspective. You must have sinned. And they're going to keep going. They say, given the proportion of your suffering, you must have sinned a lot to the point where one of his three friends says, is not your wickedness endless? Now you think about how bizarre that is in that God says that Job is unique on planet earth. Have you considered my servant Job? The, the account says he's blameless and upright, a man who feared God, I mean, et cetera. So when is his wickedness endless? When does that happen? At night when everyone's sleeping? He must be a very busy man at night. And so, but it's that theology. So also the uh, disciples' astonishment with Jesus' assertion, it's very hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. They thought they're rich, they're successful, they're blessed. Blessings and curses. If you're righteous, you're blessed. If you're wicked, you're cursed. It's that simple. Maybe it even flows from a simplistic understanding of the law of Moses. So they're saying, but we've got a problem here, and a theological problem, hmm with a baby. He's born blind. Something bad has happened to him. Who sinned? Did the baby sin in the womb? Or can sin be transferred across the generations? So that's the way that the theology is set up. That's their assumptions. In this passage then, is Jesus completely rejecting the connection between sin and suffering? Hmm. And if not, how should we understand the connection between sin and suffering? I don't think Jesus is, is completely rejecting that. There are definitely consequences that come into our lives or the lives of our families because of our sin. Therefore, in James chapter 5, it says, if anyone is sick, he should call the elders of the church to anoint him with oil and pray over him in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. So confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So James weaves in the possibility of sin and sickness. But he does say if, unlike Job's friends, he doesn't say you've sinned, no. out with it, and now you'll be healed. It's just if he has sinned. So it's beneficial for any sick person any sick Christian to ask, Lord, am I being disciplined for sin? Is there something in my life that's causing this? But it's possible that it may not be. So no, Jesus is not severing forever any connection between sin and suffering. However, in this particular case, he lifts their eyes above the immediate circumstances and said, this whole thing has been orchestrated by Almighty God. There is suffering that comes into the world expressly so that God may be glorified. And in this case, specifically, this one man who's unique in all of history, well, his suffering was set up so that Jesus could display his awesome power in him. Hmm. Andy, do you also think that perhaps there's something to you thinking about the origins of suffering in the fact that we live in a broken world, a world broken yeah. by sin? So Absolutely. where it might not be a specific individual's sin, maybe speak a little bit to how sin affects all of us and just the very nature of a fallen 
cursed world um, breeds suffering. Yeah, I don't think Jesus would say that Adam's sin had nothing to do with the baby being born blind. All sin, all suffering, and all death can be directly traced to our original father, Adam. All sin and suffering entered the world through one man. So yes, ultimately. But there's no specific transgression for which the parents or the child are being, are being punished. It's uh, instead a beautiful, uh, good work orchestrated by the sovereign plan of God that Jesus would be able to display his power. Hmm. And practically speaking, how does Jesus' answer to his disciples in verse 3 affect hmm. the attitude that we should have toward those we see suffering, perhaps even with disabilities like this man? Yeah, we should realize what I just said. All suffering in the world comes because of sin and because of Adam's sin. And understand that Jesus came into the world to take on himself all sin and all of the consequences ultimately and bring us to a perfect world where there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. There will be no blindness in heaven. There will be no paralysis in heaven. There will be no death in heaven, no pain in heaven. And that's where we're going. The best thing we can do is console ourselves and comfort ourselves with these things because these miracles um, have not continued, not like Jesus did. Uh, we do pray for healing and God sometimes answers prayers and those are miracles. But for the most part, people suffering certain maladies, they continue to suffer. And all of us suffer in some ways. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no one that makes it through this world without suffering mm. in some way. So that's what, how I would focus. And Andy, you've alluded to this, that really all suffering has a purpose. Here particularly, it's explicitly stated that uh, there's a purpose behind this suffering. How, how does that fact and this passage bring comfort to us when we undergo a severe trial? Yeah, well, James 1 says that when, whenever we are afflicted, we should consider it pure joy, joy of the purest kind, because we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that we'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so our suffering is part of our salvation process. We have to go through afflictions. We have to go through physical pain, medical issues. We have to go through financial reversals. We have to go through disappointments of various kinds. Whatever we find difficult, those things are part of our salvation process. That's how we should, we should look at it. Hmm. I love that phrase, so that. You know, I think about in First Peter 1 mm. as well as the passage you mentioned in James, there's a purpose, right? So that mm. something might happen. Yeah. And what is that something? Ultimately, so that God might be glorified. And in this case, it says that the works of God might be displayed in Him. Amen. How should we understand verse 4? Mm. Do you think that Jesus felt an urgency to get the work done? Yes. And if so, how should this give us a sense of urgency in our own lives and ministries? Mm. Yeah, he's really talking about a 12-hour day. Mm -hmm. You know, on average, planet Earth, you get 12 hours of daylight and 12, 12 hours of night. Now, if you live up near the Arctic Circle, it's going to be greatly slanted to the one side and then greatly slanted to the other. Like in the winter, you get, what, two or three hours of daylight. Yeah. That would be so depressing. I remember we lived in Alaska for a short time. Did <laughs> and you? Just the, oh, my. The need for sun-darkening shades in the summer and the lights to give you UV rays in the, in the winter is quite an experience. Yeah, but they're closer to the equator, and there I don't, I don't think there's any change at all. It must be that right on the equator you got 12 and 12 year-round. Um, and so you got 12 hours of daylight, hmm. and you can't work. When, when the sun goes down. Now, we have to keep in mind that since Edison and electricity and all that, we're used to long days. 
We're used to six hours of sleep at night. We're used to going to bed at midnight, for goodness sake. But I remember uh, my first mission trip was in Kenya, and we, I went to a rural part of Kenya. Hmm. And when the sun went down, the day was almost over. You know, people were up for another 90 minutes, but it cost money to burn the, the fuel, the, the Coleman lanterns and, and things like that. It wasn't electricity out there where I was. Hmm. And so it was only the light of burning, the light of a fire of some sort, and maybe occasionally battery lights, but for the most part it was burning and, and it cost money and, and people just didn't do it. So we've got a limited amount of time. Jesus is speaking, I've got a finite amount of time and as long as there's opportunity, I need to work the works of him who sent me. As he said to, in reference to the Samaritan woman, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. We've got work to do. We should have a similar sense of urgency. We waste so much time. Jesus didn't waste any time. Hmm. What's the connection between Jesus being the light of the world and him opening the eyes of a blind man? Mm. Do you see any spiritual significance to this? And if so, what? Absolutely. What an incredible statement. Mm. You know, he made it in John 8, 12. I am mm -hmm. the light of the world. He says it again here. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And so light makes all things visible. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So we're going to see that at the end of the chapter, that there are people that had perfectly normal eyesight physically, but they were spiritually blind. And so this man, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he really is speaking of a spiritual light. He brings spiritual light into our lives. Now, what does light do? Well, what light does is tells us the way things are around us, tells us where the furniture is, literally. Imagine walking into a room you've never been in that's thoroughly furnished and it's pitch black. You will most certainly hurt yourself if you just walk normally. Don't slow down. Don't edge around. Just, just walk in with a bold stride. You will slam your shin on something. Mm. So it's painful. You can even picture it, etc. I, If the lights are out in our home and, and I'm even in my bedroom, uh, you know, I got to be very, very careful. Uh, and so Jesus, I think, as the light of the world, it's like this is the way things really are. But we don't just mean physically. Uh, we mean spiritually. We mean there is a God who made the universe. There is a purpose to everything. There is spiritual reality. And we, by sin, have been blinded. And so this man born blind has never physically, never seen light. He's never seen color. Hmm. You think about this how impossible it would be to describe in words the difference between red and blue to a man who had never seen light. It cannot be done. There are no words. It can't be done. In the same way, we cannot explain spiritual truth to someone dead in their transgressions and sins. It makes no sense. Like it says in Corinthians, the, the things of the Spirit are foolishness to those who are not in the Spirit, to those who are dead in their transgressions and sins. Uh, the things of the Spirit are foolishness to them because they are spiritually discerned. That's mm -hmm. spiritual eyesight. Now, I believe that the eyesight of the soul is faith. So when, when the Holy Spirit regenerates somebody, saves somebody, He gives them eyesight, faith, to see invisible spiritual light. And what do they see? According to this text, they see Jesus. They see, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, um, the light of the glory of, of God in the face of Christ. Hmm. That's what we see. So Jesus is the light of the world and he opens up. Now, I, I, I can't even imagine, and we'll talk about it in just a minute, the actual healing, but 
what it must have been like to see light for the first time. And so it is for us, like John Newton, Amazing Grace, I once was blind, but now I see. Just the incredible joy of salvation. Hmm. And really, right on the heels of this statement, we see essentially an object lesson of eyes being open, right? The actual healing that's done. I find it interesting in verse 7, the man's response, right? So Jesus says, uh, after having made the mud and anointed his eyes, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Mm -hmm. And the man goes Mm -hmm. and he's washed and he comes back seeing. I wonder if you could comment on Jesus' particular approach to this healing, but then also the man's response. Yeah, it really is amazing. Um, someone once said that Jesus is breaking just about every Sabbath regulation there is. You're not supposed to spit. You're not supposed to work. He's doing all of these sort of things. But what's interesting, too, is I think the, the perfection, the symbolic perfection uh, in that our bodies, Adam's body, came from the dust of the earth. And so our bodies are mostly water. Hmm. So there's a mysterious mixture of water and minerals stuff from the earth. And so what does Jesus do but take water from his own mouth and mixes it with dirt and makes mud and smears them on the man's eyes. Now, I can't imagine any ophthalmological surgical school recommending this approach, Mm -mm. but it makes theological sense. It's like going back to the way it originally was. God did not make Adam's eyes to be blind. Why have the amazing complexity of an eyeball with the retina and the anterior posterior, the lens, the, the cornea, all of the complexity of an eyeball, the optic nerve, and have it be blind? It was not the purpose of an eyeball that it be blind. And so Jesus makes this mud. Now mud is, spit is disgusting, mud is you know dirty <laughs> and all that, and yet look at the beauty that comes mm. out of it. It's so marvelous. And the, and the man just does what he's told. I love how the the the... the pool that he gets sent to is called sent and he's like he's sent into the world to tell the truth it's so Mm. beautiful and right on the heels of him coming back seeing it really seems like we get an image of what his life must have been like before that because there's confusion as to who this man is you know the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying is this not the man who used to sit and beg and what does their response tell us even just about maybe their perception of people in this state yeah. uh, and, and what had happened to the man? Great questions. Let me, let me answer them in a minute. First, let me just swim in what it must have been like for that man, man to, see, mm. to see the world for the first time, to see his parents' faces for the first time, to see a bird soaring for the first time. You think about when you when you buy some expensive thing and you just all you can do is think about using it and you can't wait to get home and, and whatever. This guy has eyesight now. Everywhere he looks, he sees he sees mountains. It's a mountainous country. He sees Jerusalem, the, the buildings, he sees everything. It's amazing. One thing he doesn't see is Jesus, because he's not there. At the end of the chapter, they come back and they're reconnected. And he sees the face of Jesus for the first time. But he sees the world, the theater of God's glory. That's what John Calvin called it. What an incredible moment that was. Hmm. Now, in terms of the reaction from those that knew him, he had a hard life. He was a beggar. He had to beg for food. He couldn't work. Um, And it's interesting. They're not certain whether it's the same guy. And actually, to some degree, I understand that. Because you ever seen those, like, magazine photos where somebody's identity is being concealed? And there's a black rectangle across their eyes. Hmm. And you could, it could even be a famous person, unless they have like really famous hair. 
just to put a rectangular block a across their eyes in the, f in the photo, you don't know who it is. Man or woman, not quite sure. You can tell it's a man or a woman, but you can't tell who it is. So there's something different. Is there, who is this man? Is, are you the one that used to sit begging? Hmm. It's like, no, I think he is. No, he isn't. He's like, but I am the man. So that's, it's quite an amazing moment. And his response is interesting as well. When they ask him, how were your eyes opened? He answers them. What does his answer tell us about his perspective on the whole thing? Do you think he's a believer in Jesus yet? Do you think, what do, what do we learn from his, his explaining of the event? Well, first of all, I think to be a blind beggar, I think you lose introversion. Hmm. If you want to eat, you're going to be an extrovert. You're going to yell all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us, like Bartimaeus did. You know, there's just this boldness. This guy is absolutely fearless, and he's about as subtle as a brick. And the thing that's beautiful about him, he just sticks to what he knows and doesn't speculate about it, what he doesn't know. And so, how did he open your eyes? Well, he spit, made mud, put it on my eyes, I washed it off, and now I could see. So I remember teaching this a number of years ago, and in, in, there's a couple of times in this chapter we go over the same facts. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's three steps. Mud, wash, see. That's it. What do you think? How did it happen? Mud, wash, see. Later they ask him again. How did he do it? Mud, wash, now I can see. It's like, I don't have anything to add. What do you, and actually at some point later in the next podcast, we'll talk, they, they say, well, tell me again how it's like, what, look, I already told <laughs> so you. Do you, do you want to believe to <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we'll get to all that. Yeah, but yeah. he's just, that's how it happens. So there's just a simplicity about him that is so refreshing. And I think with the, the word soloam, this word means sent, it doesn't, there's no indication in John 9 that Jesus sent him out like he does the demonic, uh, the gatherings, the legion. He sends him out and tell everyone how good God has been to you. But mm. I wonder if Jesus told him that. Just tell everyone this story. It'd be awesome. Mm. Well, it's beautiful. And like you said, we're going to see more of this same story, this repeated pattern in the next podcast as we continue on in John chapter 9. But any final thoughts you have for us on this passage? Yeah, if you're a believer in Christ, you know, for Wes, you and me, the, the most beautiful, the most radiant seeing that we will ever do is yet to come. Mm -hmm. We're going to see God face to face. We're going to see Christ, the, the resurrected, glorious Christ. We're going to see the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, new earth. We're going to see everything. We're going to see beauty like we can't even imagine. And our whole bodies are going to be filled with light, as Jesus said, because our sight will be perfect. And that sight was made to see his glories, to see his glories in, in the creature, in the created things, but also see his glory uh, directly. So the best seeing is yet to come for all of us. Mm, what a day that will be. Now, this has been episode 18 in the book of John. Please join us next time for episode 19, entitled, Though I Was Blind, Now I See, where we'll discuss John chapter 9, verses 13 through 41. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.